0: Good. Hello, Dexter Morgan fans, and welcome to the Dexter New Blood Wrap-Up Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Reynolds, writer and producer of the Showtime original series, Dexter, and now the new Showtime special event series, Dexter New Blood. Man, today we've come full circle because we are here to discuss the absolutely, I don't know, it's like a, it's a kind of an epic finale of uh, Dexter New Blood. Dexter fans, I know you're probably still feeling... All the feels right now, and maybe even still processing what happened. I mean, we still are to a certain extent. But rest assured, we're going to talk it all through. Joining me now to break down the finale of New Blood is Clyde Phillips. He's the Dexter showrunner, executive producer of Dexter New Blood, and Dexter writers Mark Mazinski and Alexander Franklin. Hey, man. Let's start with, uh, I mean, Clyde, say hello. Hey, everybody. Hey, that's Clyde. Uh, This is Mark. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh man, I had no choice. Uh, Alex, <laughs> hi. There we go. So now we know everybody's voices. Hey, wow! The finale. We did it.
1: We sure did.
2: Crazy. <laughs> you guys yeah, did. I had watched rewatched it right before now, and I had to wipe my eyes before getting on this this Zoom call because it's
3: <laughs> it's. Me too. I'm, so, I'm, I mean, I watched it this morning. I had them send me the air copy. I had tears streaming down my face
0: yeah, it's a powerful landing, I think, of this of this show and of this whole Dexter journey. Speaking of journeys, I always like to start a little bit with like hearing pe- how people became writers. Like people are very, very interested in this thing. Clyde, we sort of touched on yours and our podcast a little bit. Let's talk to Alex and Mark. Alex, tell me why you became a writer, how you became a writer, this whole, crazy TV screenwriting thing. Let's go.
1: Yeah, the whole journey. Um, I mean, I always loved writing, but I guess living in Los Angeles and like doing it as a living never really seemed like a tangible possibility. I lived in the middle of Pennsylvania and I went to Penn State and everybody did business and engineering and Stuff that I guess matters (laughs) in society. (laughs) Um, And so when I graduated college, I kind of was really clueless about what I wanted to do with my life. So... I moved down to New Orleans for a little bit and I I became a, a counselor for kids who had to do a service to graduate high school. The way that I kind of kept myself up at night was I was just writing a blog sort of documenting all the misadventures of a, a girl who didn't really know what she wanted to do with her life. And um <laughs> when I was down there, uh, one of the campers found my blog. So I think she she okay. she liked her portrayal <laughs> in the blog. And she ended up sending it <laughs> to her mother who was an executive like she was the head of a of a major production company out here. And she was just like, oh, wow. hey, I really like your writing. Would you want to come and, and intern for me for a while over, like, this fall? And I... Who
3: was who was it, Alex? Who was the mother?
1: Her name was Liza, or is Liza Chasen. She was the head of working title films at the time. And so it was just sort of a windy, twisty road of uh, assistanthood for about wow. 10 years. And at some point, I landed at Sony... Uh, which is where I met Mark and our, our collaboration kind of started there and we started writing a ton together and then the first thing that we, we wrote together, we we sold back to Sony, which was our, our matchmakers oh. in the first place. So that's kind of my, my way in.
0: What a crazy... I didn't know about the New Orleans thing. That's... Uh, goes to show you, you never know. You never know. Uh, Mark Mazinski.
3: Yeah, writer. Cool. So.
0: Tell us. My, well, you and I have, like, uh, uh, connections, yeah?
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, and so I, I, when I was growing up, my best friend's dad was a science fiction author. And so that made the idea of writing seem possible. Sure. But... Not necessarily like a, a day job per se. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because even like <laughs> one year he won a Hugo Award, and then we went to all the conventions, and I was like, "Wow, this is amazing! How much do you get paid for a short story?" <laughs> and they were like. <laughs> A hundred dollars, you know? Oh. <laughs> um, and so, but I always loved writing and I, you know, that sort of broadened into theater and I eventually was doing um, some sketch and improv performance in Chicago. And my favorite part of that was the writing and producing part. And then one day, like one of my sort of like improv idols uh, had to pawn his skateboard to make rent. So he showed oh. up late and I was like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> um, and and then and I had I had only recently at the age of like 24, nobody in Illinois informed me that like TV shows get written, but <laughs> I had spent all my time watching them, and so I was like, oh my god, wait, I can be that part of this. Yeah. And so I uh, I hesitated for a bit because I'm I'm also visually impaired, and LA does not have the public transit system that Chicago does. That's right. Um but at some point I was like I'm not going to let my disability stop me from you know chasing my dreams. Uh and so I moved out to LA and then quickly discovered that every entry level job that I applied for required a driver's license. Oh my yeah that's uh, right which I can you go pick up this thing for me? Yeah. Yeah like writer's PA at the time even I think the page programs the agency mailrooms yeah. every job like that and uh and what I ended up, the one place that didn't ask for a driver's license up front was a part-time student internship at Sony. And near the end of my time there, the head of the department's assistant left. And I was like, oh my God, this is my chance. And so I, you know, I went to the head of the department and I was like, hey, I I feel like I've grown and learned a lot. And I would really love to be, you know, to stay on here. And the guy was like, oh my God, that's so great. Uh, It's too bad we already hired someone. And that was that. I know who it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is your meat cute. Yeah. Aww. Yeah.
1: I know. The story's so pleasant on my end. Like, it's just like, yeah, I did the assistant <laughs> thing. And Mark has this whole hero's journey. And then I just squash his dreams at the very, took- very end of the story.
2: You took the visually impaired guy's job. I, I, go, yeah.
1: I know. I know.
2: No one's entitled to anything was that's the right, lesson right. I learned in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> but it ended up being so much more worth it because I met Alex, who is amazing yeah. and yep. who I love working with. And somewhere along the line of us working together, uh, I was put into contact with one Clyde Phillips. Uh, I, I think I had met him through a friend of mine, Alex Lewis, whose father, Robert Lewis, was that's a TV line producer Daxter. Yeah, Yeah, and and I think several other Clyde projects, right?
3: Yes, he did everything I did in LA.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, they're like Um, brothers. Just the two of them. Yeah. And and Robert and Alex are both like some of the nicest, most wonderful people. And so they, uh, Clyde was looking for a writing assistant, and they put me in touch with him. And I remember talking to Clyde, and one of the first things he said was, you know, that he he this is a you know a challenging position. You're gonna have to work really hard but he cares a lot about mentorship. And then he listed several examples of people that he had started as his writing assistants that had gone on to illustrious careers. Uh, One of the primary examples was a guy named Scott Reynolds. Hey, that's me! (laughs) And I was like, well, I love that guy's work. If I can do any of the kind of stuff that these people are doing and learn from Clyde, then that would be amazing.
0: Yeah, Clyde's amazing. Uh, and he's sitting here. That's embarrassing, Clyde. Sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And then full circle, uh, ended up Clyde, you, uh, when we started, uh, setting up the room, the writer's room for this show, the, one of the first people you wanted to bring on was Mark. And then he said, I got this other friend, Alex. And it was (laughs) Mark and Alex.
3: It was a 2 friend. That, that's how I that's how I met Alex, because I, I said, Mark, I'm gonna give you a break. And he says, Oh, I forgot to tell you I have a writing partner. <laughs> <laughs> I think what really
2: helps me in all those situations is that Alex is way more likable than me. So it's like <laughs> I know that all I'm really doing is giving someone an even better friend. <laughs> that's right.
0: And you guys were such a huge part of this room and of this of this series and of this finale, you know? Uh, otherwise, Clyde wouldn't have had you guys uh, co-write the story of this for this for this episode. He does not suffer fools lightly, do you, Clyde? <laughs> no, I don't. You're fired, Clyde. This was a long, a long journey. Right. Let's discuss how it felt to bring Dexter's story to a close. You had strong ideas about this even back then, and especially for this season.
3: Right. I'd always wanted Dexter to meet his demise, because. First of all, what greater closure is there? Um, Second of all, what he does is reprehensible. It, It just happens to be completely entertaining because Michael Hall is so appealing and it's a serial killer show with a sense of humor. But he's a psychopath and you don't get to kill people and he needed to pay the societal price for it. We needed to have the ultimate closure. And we knew that all season long. It's just how we got there that was important. You know, there's the old saw about, for, for any man, whether you're a completely normal person or a fucked up person, that you need to kill your father in order to move on in life. Right. And I had, as you, as you, Scott, know, had a terrible childhood and a terrible father, whom I've yeah. killed many times in my novels and in and in screen screenplays and teleplays and therapy um, <laughs> and uh, so it was it was natural to do as I've said to you before I, I wrote the script with uh, a pen filled with blood. It's why it's very moving. it's very emotional. I was just an hour ago wiping tears away watching the show again.
0: yeah, I was watching it with uh, my wife and uh, and and uh, rob and and watching with them then they had never seen it. The the I felt the emotion sort of rolling off of them onto me. Like I was able to watch it as as someone who just wants to see what happens to Dexter, you know, and to see what happens yeah, the, to Harrison and Angela and all these characters that we've grown to love over the course of the season.
3: There, there's so many factors that go into this behind the scenes. I mean, you know, a great writing room, a great collaboration, great contributions of, of uh, Alex and a little, a little bit by Mark. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> But, you know, people don't know that, you know, this is a a very difficult scene, and Jack is a young actor, and we were chasing snow everywhere we went because we shot completely out of order, but we had a little behind-the-scenes conversation about, you know what, this is going to be a really hard scene for Jack. Let's do an interior scene in the middle of a snowstorm in the therapist's office, so that which you wrote, so that we can get Jack's chops going, Jack Alcott's chops going, and his relationship yeah. with Michael C. Hall going. And then one weekend, we all went into the offices in Massachusetts, cleared out the bullpen where all the assistants were because of COVID. You couldn't be close to yeah. each other. For some reason, yeah. I had a baseball bat in my office, and uh, we gave that to Jack, to, and Marcos came in, Marcos Siega, yeah. uh, and we gave that to um, Jack to use as a rifle, and they rehearsed and rehearsed the scene, in the bullpen, and we talked. We talked about it. Michael had some ideas. We changed some things up. I rewrote some things, and even on the day of the shoot, Michael would have, would have a question. Jack would have a question. I changed things for them, and then I'll never forget. At the end of one take, in which both of them are active, Michael yelled out across the snowy meadow, "Thanks for the good words, Clyde." I mean, what? Yeah. What better compliment is that in front of a whole crew, in front of the cast? Yeah. It was
0: a powerful moment. Everybody could feel it. The whole cast, the whole crew, everybody mm. sort of treated it. Uh, it was sacred. I don't know, almost sacred or something like, because uh, yeah. we were all a part of something that's got, to, by the way, had to keep secret for the next eight months. Everybody treated this with the respect that it that it needed to have. Mark, Alex, talk about just being thrust in the middle of it all. Uh, what was it like to be part of Dexter New Blood? The, you know, the, not only sort of like a you know uh, kind of a writing team, but kind of not, but joining up with this new team, contributing to an episode that is, I mean, what a way yeah. to start. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Your first episode is the finale
0: and you write it with Clyde Phillips. Give me a break.
1: Yeah, I think I was like covered in CBD oil for the entire time that we were (laughs) in the room because I just couldn't believe that I was a part of something so iconic and so epic. And I remember the day that you announced uh, what episodes we were going to write. And, uh, you know, we had the honor of being told that we were going to be writing the finale with you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Clyde Phillips said, I think I just like went back into my office and cried. I was like, I can't believe I'm a part of this. So yeah, if I wasn't leaking sweat, I was leaking tears. It was very overwhelming, but also just like the greatest, the greatest, most single best honor of my life.
2: I mean, it was funny because I had, I had been working with Clyde previously. So that's right. I had seen firsthand how good he is at at, at almost every aspect of of this business, and then it was funny for me, and I had like tried to explain to Alex that like what she was about to encounter, but then like I got to live it anew. And I think one of the things that was was really cool to see is already knowing how like that Clyde is a genius, uh, it, it, then seeing him bring. Aboard this group of people, and every single idea, as it went up and through the works, just got better. As it went through the writing process, it got better. As it went through production, it got better. As it went through editing, like seeing it all now on air, watching these things that you know Clyde and and the other writers would have brought to the table, you know, to, almost two years ago now. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, seeing them just flourish in this way. Uh, I don't know. It it just showed me so much that like, both as a creative, you know, visionary himself, but also as a leader of this group, um, when both of those skills work together, damn.
1: It really felt like we were incredibly in incredibly safe hands with with you, Clyde, and and you, Scott. It just you had such an understanding of who this character is and what this world was going to be that having you guide us, just made the experience so special. And we, I, I kind of had, we, we knew it was going to be great. And then we saw it and it even blew our expectations out of the water.
0: But it's scary. Let's all, let's all be honest. Like it's scary trying to land the plane like this. Yeah. 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 Especially yeah. something that's so beloved. But uh, yeah, I think it, uh, I think it worked out really well because we, what we watched was at the top of this episode, You have Dexter walking around his burnt-down cabin, which is dredging up a lot of stuff for you too, Clyde, you know. Um, And then... uh, What what, what
3: Scott's referring to is I had a house burned down. So it was pretty triggering. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. That was... was, (laughs) I mean, when you pitch in the room, you're like, oh, great. Thanks. Thanks, guys. But what's... uh, So you have Dexter at the top of this episode, sort of on top of the world, right? Uh, Anybody else would just be like bereft and going, what am I going to do? Dexter's like, I love this place. These were good people. Uh, I've got my son. He knows who I am. He ad- he adores me. Uh, he's just like me, which is you know what Dexter wants. Really, he finally was able to admit it, and he's we're got this go plan. Yeah, yep,
3: we're, we're, we're gonna go off. We're gonna together. move to
0: Los Angeles, and we're gonna we're gonna live. We're gonna work out the code together. Batman and Robin. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was awesome seeing that play out the way that it did because, it, oh my God, Michael C. Hall is such a genius. You even notice like a, a slight tonal change in his acting once he realized that this was what his life was going to be. Like him kind of wearing proudly the suit of a serial killer that can share his life with somebody. It was so, so nuanced, yeah. but I was just, oh my God, it was so gripping to watch.
0: And even Marcos was so smart in the way that he shot that. Suddenly, this was Dexter Morgan walking around Iron Lake. Like that sort of slow motion that we used to do back in the day when Dexter would walk into the police station and take everything in. He's the lord of this domain, right? And then things unravel a bit.
3: (laughs) Well, in watching it, you know, and in writing it, I I wanted to parallel the the first episode of the season which I wrote with this episode and reintroducing all the characters who are there to help clean up his burned down cabin as we introduce them in the first episode. Opening with a voiceover, although it's Molly Park's voiceover, and closing with a voiceover, which is Dexter's voiceover. Um, Both posthumously. Uh, His running through the woods uh, in the first episode and in the last episode to the scene where the deer was shot.
0: Very different Uh, runs. By the way, but they look the same, yeah. And then, yeah, little does he know, like Dexter's on top of the world. He's gonna go move. He's gonna, everything's gonna be great. And then Angela finds that second screw, and that screw was the one that um, Kurt gave him a while back, and he and he's stuck it in through his desk,
3: Elric.
2: right?
0: Yeah, yeah, through Elric. When Elric gave it to uh, Harrison, right? That's right. So that that was just like you know, he would never have thought that would have come back. It was just sitting in his sitting in his desk. And uh, dang Well,
3: it. In, the, in the last moment of, of, the, of the previous episode of yours, Angela got all the other screws in the metal plate yep. from Matt's surgery. And this was yep. the final screw in the coffin, as it were. And she was able to mash them up because they have serial numbers. And yep. uh, indeed, they were from Matt.
0: Yep, so it all, it all starts to fall apart. So let's talk about, um, man, Angela's making the decision to arrest Dexter. You want to talk about putting that scene together, Clyde? The, because it's a very sure. moving, threatening. I mean, I remember even that moment when Dexter puts his hands on his head, and then you see the reflection, which you're so good at with those visuals—the reflection in the in the toaster. In Everything's the all toaster, warped yeah. and weird. And there's like that brief moment where he's reaching for he might reach for the knife. Uh, Amy, sitting next to me, my wife, was just like, <gasps> <laughs> just completely <laughs> taken. Uh, you want to talk about the well, uh, putting that scene together, writing that thing, the process behind it, how you guys did that?
3: Interestingly, Julia was the engine for that scene. You know, if you remember, she she's got her suspicions about Dexter already. She's uh, been researching him in your episode, in the previous episode. She finds that screw. Um, she has the other screws. She does the research. And there's just one moment, it's a very simple moment, of Angela in her car, in her own driveway, looking in on Dexter and Harrison and Audrey. And Marcos just has a camera just directly on her face, and we see her face change, and she basically says an internal, fuck me, I gotta do this. And she, without the camera moving, her face drops and she gets out of the car, and comes into the house and has to get the kids out of the house. Yeah. And uh, she does that by sending them off to the market. And we have some fun with that. And um, then Michael is making jokes, trying to make, sh- make everything okay. He says, would you like some wine? I'm sorry to say it's a little smoky. Smoky. And then <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and then she's not reacting to anything. And he's trying everything. And then he finally goes to hug her, and she can't take it. And she pushes him away forcefully, and and very forcefully, and pulls out her gun, pulls back the slider on on her Glock, pulls back the action on her Glock. And Dexter's still trying to make light of it. She's saying, uh, on your knees, turn around. And he said, whoa, you're taking this whole mistress role-playing thing a little far. (laughs) And (laughs) still wanted to just keep the... Impetus, oddly enough, because Dexter's got a lot to do in this show, keep it on Julia, because no matter what we're doing, we're inside Dexter all the time. Yes. And she was the propulsion that kept this thing going and kept it real. And we start to think, holy shit, Dexter's in trouble. And he gets in more and more and more and more and more trouble as the show goes on, to the point where he has to out of desperation, get himself out of there.
0: It's a wonderfully tense sort of moment. And like, it's its interesting, like when he says, uh, you're taking role playing to a whole nother level, like part of me is like, I think maybe he believed it a little bit, you know, like he can't, he, I don't think he could fathom that everything has gone so badly because he's missed all of these sort of cues from her, which he normally can't, normally human cues aren't his forte. <laughs> You know right. what I mean? But he sort of missed all these things because he is in just pure bliss because of his son. You know, from last episode to this episode, he's got a plan. It, it's going to work out. And also, and, uh,
3: we had, if you remember, we initially had, when, when Angela's got the gun on him and he's looking at the toaster and he's reaching out with his left hand to the knives and all of this business, which I know was you talking from, texting from the other room to Marcos. We used, and initially had her click her police radio. To yes, let that's right. Logan know to come in, and then in the, like the third edit, we took that out just to show how fucked Dexter is. That that yeah. this is so well planned by once again by Angela by Julia, that all the timing is right. That she really put this together, and Dexter's not getting away. Yeah.
1: I love it. These two it's two people one of the, that are in
3: control. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's one of the few, if only, times that we see another character ahead of Dexter. And it's yeah. really tense. So your decision to take that out, I, I th- thought it was genius.
3: Julia is ahead of Dexter for almost the whole show until he outsmarts her three quarters of the way through. She's one step ahead of him the whole way. She's armed with information that he doesn't know she has. And he's yeah. trying to sweet talk her by talking about Vincent Van Gogh and um, taking this sex thing to a whole other level. And come on, Julia, you come on, Angela, you're better than this. Because I didn't do it, he kept, he kept saying, and she knows better. And we never, you're right, Alex, we never get to see that. What a good cop that uh,
0: Angela was. I guess what I really love about her journey too, Angela's journey, is like, you know, a lot of cop shows is like, "I'm going to get to the truth, right? I'm going to get to the truth." But this is so personal for her because it's so. it you was know, a hard yeah. journey for her to become chief of police of this small town, uh, and then suddenly, to, you know, to suddenly find out that your <laughs> your boyfriend might be the Bay Harbor Butcher. I mean, that's a hard well,
3: that's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> this is after losing Kurt. You know, she had yeah. she had arrested Kurt, the, the mayor of the town, basically quite publicly, and was quite publicly humiliated. When yeah, he got off. She
0: doubled down. It's oh. wild just watching his his life unravel. And yet and yet even during that really tense I mean, how tense is that that interrogation? There's two interrogations in this thing. Two people just sitting in a room, which, you know, some directors might think that's deadly. Uh, but Marcos and Hillary and the script sort of and the actors just made this thing uh just hum. I want to talk about the interrogation a little bit?
3: We had a great outline. I mean, you know, as you, know, you all know, I'm, I'm a motherfucker about outlines. And Alex and Mark really helped me with the outline. And I had a great structure to work off of. I wrote, there's two big interrogations in there. And it probably took me a day and a half to write them because I was so well prepared. I knew what I wanted. I had a great outline from the, from Mark and Alex. And I lived those scenes for a couple of days before I sat down and wrote them, having, you know, when you're doing this long enough, and you tell yourself that you know, okay, I'm having trouble here, or this is going to be difficult, but I'm going to do it, and I felt confident that I was going to get through it. And I, uh, and once I started writing it, it just came out, and the nuance in the Dexter's attempt at jokes and Dexter's desperation and Dexter's understanding—you just look at the subtlety of Michael C. Hall's face when she hits him each time with a new piece of incriminating evidence. And if you start at the beginning and go to the end, you see, basically you could see his face drop. However, because he's doing it in increments, it's just a beautiful descension, a beautiful descent until he ends up where he is. He was able to like bob and
0: weave and offer alternate theories and be the Dexter that we all love, but that moment when when uh, Angela drops the hammer about Batista, that's when that's the first time you really see Dexter just like, oh shit, I am in I am in bad trouble here. This is my carefully constructed life that I am the lord and king over can fall apart at any second now. And then he makes that decision of like, okay, I can win her over.
3: Turn off the camera. Uh, Turn off the camera. And and she said, why would I do that? And he just stares her down. The way he stared down Matt in the first episode. <laughs> That's right. Until she finally turns off the camera and he talks. He, really, his mission is to get her out of the police station so that you know the fewer cops uh, that are in there, the greater chance he has of making his mis- escape. He turns to her and says, your life's work, this missing persons board, I can solve for you. But you need to go to Kurtz. And yeah. she um, goes, "Damn it!" And then she goes there, and that's an astonishing scene uh, yeah. that Mark Marco shot. Um, and then Dexter and, looks and, and, to camera at us,
0: like yes. his head is down, and this. he slowly looks up, and he looks right at us, and it's, yeah. it's, a,
3: it's, I got this.
0: He's like, "You yeah. made me do this."
3: <laughs> and then Angela at the tomb is just terrific. It yes. was some of her best work, I think, in the season of great work. She's so horrified, so sad, so broken, so determined. But what Dexter has done is, he's now alone in the police station with just one cop. He only has yeah. to get past one person. And- he had to have that conversation with Deb.
0: Remember, like, because I th- yes. there's, a, there's a little part of his soul that was like yes. hoping, you know what, Deb. De- Deb came around and she saw that I was kind of the good guy here and uh, and Deb is just like yeah I, she don't love you like I loved
3: you man <laughs> yeah I'm your sister yeah right. yeah
0: yeah and so De- you know that's when Dexter just like knows uh yeah I'm this is this isn't the right thing to think like there's no way that she's gonna she's gonna look at that and then she's gonna take down Kurt and me <laughs> that's it
3: it's really kind of two movies at once. And The second half of the movie, you know, starts when he grabs Logan's water bottle yeah. and you're on a whole other ride. You've gone through all of this investigative stuff um, <clears throat> and Dexter's in trouble. Then he takes control by grabbing that water bottle and asserting himself and taking and Brings, brings yeah. himself to his own demise.
2: That shot of Deb with it framed by the little window in the cell. Yes, yes. her silhouette is just beautiful in the
0: shadow, and then she's not there. Like that was uh, that was yes that was Marcos like really it's saying
3: Hillary. It's Hillary and Marcos.
0: Yeah, it's uh, so in his head, so so good.
3: The end of season four, when Dexter comes home and he's looking at the moon and he's saying, "I wonder if." Rita is seeing the same moon in Jamaica that I'm seeing right now. We've reprised that in this episode when he's looking out the window, looking at the moon. And then we cut outside to Angela lying on the police car. And we special affected the moon onto the front window of her police car. And they're looking at the same moon and she goes, mother fuck. And she gets off of that thing and she bursts into the police station and calls Batista. And everybody
0: cheered when Batista showed up again.
3: Yeah. Across America, I bet.
1: (laughs) I also hope everyone's happy that Batista's happy. Like, it makes me feel good, at least of a fan of the show. It's just like, oh, he married. He has kids now. He's good. That's good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that Batista's response is, I'm, I'm a happily, I hope I didn't give you the wrong, uh, uh ideas. Impression, I'm a happily yeah. married
3: man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting that's alone so in his Barker lounger, or walking, watching the news and falling asleep. <laughs> that's, that's
0: being married, Clyde. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> that's right.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Logan, so good this whole, this whole season being the sort of, you know, he's the third surrogate father figure for, for Harrison. This, uh. This coach. I mean, coaches were a very important part of your life, huh, Clyde?
3: Sure. I played a lot of sports my whole life. And often my coaches were also teachers and were influential in pushing me forward Um, from junior high to high to Boston Latin School um, to college to graduate school. I mean, they played a big part of my life. They were my surrogate fathers because I had no father.
0: So, you know, Harrison sort of leaned into that relationship with Logan because Logan was a genuinely good guy, you know?
3: Yeah, arguably the uh,
0: only
1: one who genuinely cared about him, actually.
0: Yeah. That's
3: true, who yeah, was yeah. genuine about it? Kurt, although Kurt was a coach, too. He coached uh, the wrestling team and um, was an athlete, uh, led the Valley League in uh, hitting in uh, senior year.
0: talk about being on set, Clyde, on that scene when Dexter kills Logan. Because that was a big discussion in the room. I'm like, oh, man, wow. Is this a lot? Is this too much? Is this
3: good? Is this, you know? Well, Michael was just great about it. I mean, he was so intense saying, stop struggling. I don't want to hurt you. This is inevitable. I've got you in a position that you can't get out of. One of the struggles that we had was that in some of the early edits... It looked like Logan shot his gun and then Dexter broke his neck because he shot the gun. But as written, and where we finally got, actually with sound effects, was yep. that as, as written, Logan shoots the gun and Dexter, in ducking away, breaks Logan's neck by accident. Yep. Um, but it looked like Dexter was doing it in response to that. And then we tried everything in the world Uh, visually, and then um, I said, how about if you put the sound effect right where the gunshot is? The sound effect of of the neck breaking. And suddenly, or maybe it was Perry's idea, or Katie's idea, I don't remember. Katie Ennis, the editor. Uh, But it worked. And it it absolved Dexter in a way. It was an accident.
0: Yeah. I like his response just like, ah, man, I didn't want to do that.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
2: Like
0: like you dropped milk. (laughs) Oh, man. I've gotten more upset at, like, dropping a gallon
2: of milk than Dexter did at the moment. (laughs) Ah, shit. Both of you were so smart in the construction of really this whole season, because in this relationship with Harrison, we start to humanize Dexter, but then at his core, something you were both so vigilant about throughout this process is, like, he's a sociopath. And, you know, at the end of the day... If, if, he, if this is the only way for him to survive, this is what he'll do.
3: Well, that's an interesting point. When Harrison has the gun pointed at Dexter, and again, that's Chekhov's gun. You know, I mean, it's classic. And he says, take off the safety just the way I showed you. Shoot me here. And then as Harrison is girding his own loins to get this going, Dexter's voiceover comes up and says, yeah. I've never felt love before. But now I do, and it's for my own son and for what he's about to do. And then Harrison pulls the trigger, and Dexter says, you did good. He forgives him. And then Deb is there, and she had the idea of pulling away from Dexter and uh, Jennifer Carpenter, which was really powerful. And then another thing that we talked about a lot with Marcos and you um, was, okay, we're going to kill an iconic figure. And how does he die? What does it look like? What position is his body in? It's so tempting to have him splayed out on the ice like Christ or to have him like this with blood coming down and he's an angel with wings. And then Michael had the idea of awkwardly stumbling backward and kind of crossing one knee over one thigh um, or whatever the ultimate thing was. And it just looked like that he had been separated from how his body works and just collapsed, yeah. and because yeah. because again we had we shot a lot of shit with him lying on the ground dead, and yeah. so we we had finally to get got it to right.
0: be, see what it was like to lay down during an entire scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's right, that's right.
0: Going back to that that I've never truly felt love before line, um, I remember that like moved us when you guys mm. when you when you came up with that in the room, Clyde. That that whole idea and it's very. It's interesting because it's like, what Dexter's saying there is, is you know, it could, be, it could be taken lots of different ways, which is quite wonderful, I think. But, you know, that Dexter, true love is sacrificial.
3: Well, it's also the last line of the, of this, of the script. You're right. First of all, it is a culmination of a, of a, of a very difficult journey for Dexter. I think yes. Dexter would have chosen to be anybody else other than who he was if he had a choice. Yeah. And... The, the last line of the letter that he's reading, of the voiceover, uh, is, um, let me die so that my son can live. Yep. That is the biggest <laughs> sacrifice there is. Yep. And, had, and that and, actually and never been able to just, do that before, ever. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. And just, you know, whatever writing seminar this, this is, I could not have written that if I were not a father. You know, I mean, we change as writers as we experience more and more life. I mean, I wrote plenty of husband and wife scenes before I was married that had nothing to do with what we're doing now.
0: (laughs) Clyde, you and I had very different sort of visions of what you did good. And that's what sort of why you are such a good sort of showrunner, that you sort of, you can allow many thoughts to exist within a thought, uh, which is great writing and great storytelling and all that sort of stuff. But like for me, you did good... What, there's a part of that to sort of like, my son is following the code in the right way. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it can mean both you, of these things. Yeah.
3: And you did the right thing. Yeah. You know, you, you, you were faced with an impossible choice and you made the right choice. Yeah. Um, and you are absolved. You did the right thing. You have my permission. I urged you to do it. You were in an impossible position. Dexter says it's the only way out. And Harrison says, for both of us. Yeah, I mean, my favorite my favorite line in that sequence when Dexter says, "I can be a better father with your help," and Harrison says, "I'm not your fucking caretaker." I mean, that gets me every time.
0: Yeah, it was it's breaking down Dexter's like pure selfish way of looking at the world, getting get, getting getting yes. to that point where he's able to say, "I've never felt love, true love, until this moment." Being sacrificial, giving up something because Dexter's just was un, incapable. Even with Dab, he was like, "No, no." Kill everybody else, but let us do our thing. You know, there was no sacrifice right. even with Deb. The final letter, like, because we we were sort of struggling. It's like, wow, how do you end a show without hearing Dexter? <laughs> yes. That um, um, no, was just a great pitch well, in we, the room. Was it Mark? Alex? Was it I you guys? It, I forget. It was
1: Mark. Uh, yeah, I think we were struggling about what how we could still hear him. And I I remember because it was before we got on with the room and Mark's like, don't we still have the letter? And I was like, oh my God, you have to say that. That would be such a great way to end the show. Um, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I'm Mark's hype hype woman.
0: If anybody needs a speech or a letter or an emotional sort of thing written for them, you're the go-to guy. So Clyde, talk about writing that letter. This farewell.
3: Mark and Alice contributed to that to that letter uh, first of all and um, the and then once I, I had that, then I knew the, the, I knew the beats of what I wanted to have what, what I wanted him to be narrating. again, once again it's a reprise of going through town, seeing all the characters again seeing the town, lit, going by his high school where he was actually happy, going by the diner where he worked, um, going by, Everything that was normal. That's another line that I love in the, in the rifle scene, which yeah. is, I, don't, uh, I forgot what it was. I don't want to. I don't want to be right. I just want to be normal. Yeah, I don't want to be right. That's exactly it. I just want to be normal. He was so hungry for normalcy. And then it's taken from him. And, and originally, what people don't know is we were originally, and in fact, got far, pretty far down the line where as he's driving out of town, a deer appears on the side of the road and is running with him and runs past the highway sign leading him to the, uh, the on-ramp. And then we figured, well, it's too much. We don't need it. it and also with Showtime's influence. Uh, it's too much. Uh, we don't need it. Let's just keep this a simple, let's simplify this journey and make it as focused as possible. And I'm so glad that we did that.
0: Yeah, no, it's a it's a, an emotional drive, an emotional letter. And then Harrison drives off. There's even almost, you know, there's a lot of emotion as he's driving through and seeing all these places and thinking through his father's final message to him. And then with that beautiful song, I mean, there's two great songs. Oh, in the
3: national,
0: that. yeah. Yeah, the, na- the national at the end, just really, I think that was like a Marcos wanted that from the very beginning.
3: Yeah, I had tried a couple of other songs, Alexi Murdoch and Charlie Musselwhite and a bunch of different things. And Marcos was absolutely right with that song.
0: Yeah, it's it 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 fits that voice, the lyric, everything. It it touches on it without informing it. Like it's really really just a beautiful, just a beautiful sequence. And then there's just like a slight bit of hope at that end as we as we are on Harrison and we cuts a black. Like mm-hmm. there's something else out there. You know, he's got He's got a, he's got a nice, he's got a pretty good truck. <laughs> he's got like, you know, $30,000 from Kurt sitting in a, in, Kurt, a, in a yellow yeah. envelope and some money from Angela. He's going to have a lot to deal with.
3: And there's a, there's another great song. There's another great song in there too. When Dexter got arrested and they're walking him outside.
0: The Radiohead song. Yeah.
3: The Radiohead song. Yeah. The, the music this year has been terrific. And, and, you know, I owe, I honor the memory of Dan Licht and, uh, I'm so honored to be working with Pat Irwin on this show. Uh, it, we really killed it in in the music department.
0: Yeah. And Michael Hill, I mean, we made a conscious decision from the very beginning that we were going to add lots of uh, needle drops, lots of yes. songs. So, uh, hey, man, so what was your Mark and Alex seeing this happen? What was your sa- sort of favorite moment for the finale that felt sort of satisfying to you that, that went from, like, that outline to a script to
2: seeing it on screen were there things that just really grabbed you I mean there were so many things I guess it's hard because this is the last one so much of that ending and so many of the little moments like you know hearing that letter and watching him drive out and you see just the way um, Angela puts the, the cash in Harrison's hands at the end and like hugs him and he's like say goodbye to Audrey and she can't and then that whole lead up to the end and then you see all of the the sort of cavalcade of stuff coming into the town um, as he passes and you're like oh man like just seeing it's such a visceral feeling of him leaving not just that town but like the world of the show behind
3: that Um, line of of say goodbye to Audrey uh, I can't because I haven't seen you uh, uh-huh. I wrote a month after we turned in the script. It just occurred to me in the middle of the night. and I was able to, you know, those little pieces of paper I would show up with in the mornings. And, and so I had one of that. And it, the script was written and approved uh, and everything. And then that line came. It's just what happened. It's just the process. Yeah. But the, I think it's Alex's
1: No, I love that line. To- uh, so much so because, like, you know that in that moment... Angela's showing her humanity and giving Harrison a second shot. And like you were saying, Scott, you have that element of hope, like maybe Harrison's gonna be okay. Like life will go on for him. I think the parts that really, really gripped me uh, were the two interrogation scenes. Um, I mean, the two of them acted the hell out of it, but finally watching it, I just, I mean, logically I obviously knew, but I felt, oh my God, The whole being of Dexter is collapsing in on itself and there really is no way out for him. And sort of watching that as a viewer and as a fan was... Oh my god! It like took my breath away. I had my blanket over my head. I couldn't <laughs> look
3: directly <laughs> at it. My wife had her sweater. Yeah, so my wife had her sweater with her friend. She couldn't watch. Yeah, I mean, she's watching through the holes in the sweater. Yeah, yeah
1: okay. I, you, Jane, and I are the same in that in that way. <laughs> um, and to feel what it what it must have, you know, what the audience hopefully feels was so thrilling. Um, and devastating at the same time, because you knew it would have to end tragically.
3: I just keep quoting Chekhov, which is um, that the ending was, I think, surprising, and I think inevitable. If you play this show, the show, the season backwards, everything makes sense. It's like the usual suspects. You know, you get yeah. all these surprises at the end, and you play it backward, and it all it's all there. Yep.
0: Yeah, it's it's the season where Dexter learns that he's the villain. Yes, and in some ways, the the viewers too.
3: <laughs> yes, you know. Yes.
0: Yeah, it was all it was all guiding us toward that that realization for himself. That moment. I mean, I knew we had. I f- felt like we had something special when when Harrison did that callback from the very first episode and said, "Open your eyes and look at what
3: you've done." Right, uh, very first episode of the pilot of the very first of the season. pilot.
0: Yes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Killing the pedophile.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> we made it. Uh, Clyde, um, there's a lot of fans out there. Do you have like a message for them at the end of all of this? Like uh, what you want to say to to all these people that have followed this journey?
3: I know that a lot. I was, it's interesting. I was just giving an L.A. Times interview a little while ago and the reporter was saying, you know, I've been waking up for nine years now on Sunday mornings thinking, what am I doing today? Soccer with my kids, lunch with my family, watch a little football, and watch Dexter. And I'm so humbled by that. I'm humbled by when the show was announced, this new season was announced, that all of the Twitter, all of the traffic on um, the internet, not, not all, of it, a lot of the traffic on the internet, was about this has been such a shitty year with COVID and uh, pick your politics. Um, and finally, I have something to look forward to. And to be humbled by getting to do something for a living that I absolutely love to do is the greatest feeling in the world. And I offer to anybody out there, whether it's writing or teaching or doctoring or bricklaying or whatever it is, to find something you love to do um, so that you're happy every morning going to work.
2: Except serial killing. So, yeah, right. If you've learned one thing,
0: maybe <laughs> don't follow the steps of Kurt and Dexter. <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much, Clyde, Mark, and Alex for joining me to break down the Dexter New Blood finale. Uh, you guys knocked out of the park, in my opinion. It was beautiful and inevitable, like you say, Clyde. Thank you for saying such great insight into this into this episode, into this ending. Um, You guys are great. And that's... A wrap. To all the Dexter fans, we appreciate your passion for Dexter and how you've embraced this chapter of the series. Welcome new characters. And of course, some familiar. Hope you enjoyed this episode and all the episodes as much as we enjoyed making them for you. Thank you for watching, listening, and joining us on this journey every single week. I want to give a special thank you to all the guests who have come on the podcast to talk about their experiences both being on and in making the series and the teams from Showtime and Malcolm Media who helped put it all together. And if you're missing Dexter, there's no better time to go back and rewatch the series now that you have all the the behind-the-scenes scoop. All episodes of Dexter New Blood are now streaming only on Showtime. And if you want to check out another great dark drama, I highly recommend Yellow Jackets. It's part survival epic, part horror, and a lot of great 90s music. You should check it out. It's also streaming only on Showtime.